The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Well, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the second epistle of Paul to Timothy. So if you have uh, 2 Timothy or 2 Timothy, and uh, I'd like to just read the first five verses of chapter 4. First five verses of chapter 4. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn the ears away from truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. May God be pleased to add his blessing to Holy Scripture. Please be seated. Well, I want to just, first of all, once again, uh, extend a word of thanks for the invitation. It's always a joy to come and, and bring God's word to you. Uh, I wanted to share with you uh, this morning from this passage in Timothy, because it has really become a very precious passage to me. And I just recently preached it. I've been preaching a series through the book of Acts uh, in the morning, and then I'll preach a passage that highlights or at least traces out a theme in the book of Acts. And I've been so struck with the faithfulness of Peter and how Peter faithfully preached the scriptures even before the Sanhedrin and how, uh, how he was just true to the text, just his understanding of the Old Testament and just his incredible ability to, to apply the text. And this passage came to my mind as a, as a, as a message to preach uh, by way of application of Peter's faithful ministry. And so I want us to consider from Paul's final words to Timothy how important the primacy of preaching is for those who desire to be uh, men of God and serving the church of Jesus Christ. And really the charge in verse 1 to 5 initiates the final thoughts of what is Paul's ministerial last will and testament. And so I want us to look at this passage. No doubt you've heard this text preached many times, but I trust that the Lord will bring it home with, with some freshness. The first thing I want us to notice in the text before us is I want us to see the weight and the solemnity of the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. Take a look at these words. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Can you imagine Paul just kind of haphazardly or just carelessly saying those words? The passion that this man must have had when he wrote those words to Timothy. There could be, I think, no greater and more solemn a charge given. Think about what Paul is doing here. He is invoking what is, in fact, an eternal, unchangeable reality. He's invoking the actual presence of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And he, the weight, the, 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 
the seriousness of this. They, he's saying the triune God is present. I mean, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. And as he wrote these words, he, he had a sense of the presence of God. He knew that as Timothy read these words for the first time, that the presence of God be, would be with him. And, and as he read these words, he was praying that God would bring this charge with great force and impact upon the heart of Timothy. Now, I want you to notice the three, three realities that... Paul impresses upon Timothy regarding the triune God, and particularly about Jesus Christ. First of all, he draws Timothy's attention to the judgment of Jesus Christ. He says, he makes it clear, Jesus, not God the Father, will judge the living and the dead. Our Lord Jesus, early on in his ministry, said this to those who were his detractors. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In other words, all judgment is committed to Jesus. And then later on in that very exchange, our Lord Jesus informed his detractors, the Jews, this, Verse 27, that God had given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. So what is our Lord claiming? And what is Paul impressing upon Timothy here? What is the relevance of this to this young man? And what is the relevance of this to us? Well, he's telling us that Jesus claimed to be the awesome son of man of Daniel's vision, whom Daniel saw coming in the clouds of heaven. To the ancient of days. Remember, Daniel writes this in Daniel 7:14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. This awesome son of man who came in the flesh as Jesus and lived before the father in the earth as the one appointed to serve him and did it perfectly will be the judge says Paul of Timothy's service this was meant to encourage and energize Timothy it wasn't meant to discourage him it was meant to add weight to what Paul was saying John Calvin writes this, he says, he makes special mention of the judgment of Christ because he will require of us who are his representatives a stricter account of our failures in his ministry. Remember what James says, beloved. He says this, James chapter 3, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And remember the words of the apostle in Hebrews, who writes these words. They keep watch over you, talking about elders and leaders. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account, who must give an account. And I want to I say this to you, you brethren, as you study for the ministry. 
The realization that our service will be judged by the servant of all servants is a extremely weighty matter. But I want to also add this. It's not a negative thing. Especially if your heart sincerely desires to honor Christ. This is a good thing for a servant of Christ. Because everything you do is not wasted. That's why Paul could write in 1 Corinthians, Brethren, your labors for the Lord are not in vain. So he talks about Jesus' judgment. But I want you to notice also how he invokes Jesus appearing. He says here, this is, the, this is what he, he says. He says, looking for the blessed hope. Well, in fact, let me quote from another passage. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 to 14 does the same thing. Paul does for Titus, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Christ is going to judge our works and Christ will soon appear. And our works will be made known when he appears. This is what awaits Timothy. This is what awaits you, what awaits me. And it is a glorious day. It is a glorious day which every true servant of God is waiting. He also speaks of the dazzling reality that will be followed. He talks about his kingdom. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In other words, the man of God, as he labors amongst the people of God, ought to have his eyes fixed above. So often we, we fix our eyes on what's going on over here and we forget what's coming. And this is what Paul is pressing upon Timothy. Timothy, don't lose sight of what's coming, of what will take place. Everyone who is faithful, like Timothy in his trade, will rule with him forever and ever when the sons of glory are revealed. What a reward. What a blessed day that will be. And so I want to impress upon you the solemnity of this charge in the presence of God. And I want to you to be encouraged, as I know Paul wanted Timothy to be encouraged and stirred in his soul. Because, beloved, we need this motivation. I don't know how you feel about the current state of the church, but I can just tell you right now, being in the trenches, the church is not in a good way. The church is not in a good way. And I think this is the only thing that will stay you on the course of faithfulness. Remember that he is coming, that he will evaluate your work. His judgment is coming. His appearing will take place. But then, not only do I want to impress upon you the solemnity of the charge, I want you to consider the type of charge, the type of charge, the manner of charge delivered. The charge is contained in a single statement made, of, made up of five terse imperatives. It's amazing. The last words of a dying man, the weight they carry, the intensity, the force of what he's saying, 
There's such intensity here in Paul's word. Preach the word, he says, verse 2. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. The abruptness of these commands bears with it the sense of urgency. Thomas Watson put it this way. Our task is great. Our time is short and our master is urgent. Timothy, he says, don't waste any time. Get to it. Get to it. Now, if you understand something of the dynamic between Paul and Timothy, it is, I think, well established that Timothy was probably a man, a young man that was a little timid. He was a little shy, he was a little reticent. There were things that he didn't naturally like to do. And you know what? What a wonderful, what a wonderful thing to reflect on because the reality is there are certain things that every preacher, every pastor does not like to do, especially if they're a bit reserved. And really, when you think of what Paul is doing here, he's being doggedly assist, insistent. The first thing he demands that Timothy do, preach the word. Most of you can probably recite this in the Greek. Kerechon, ton, logon. That is proclaim or herald the word. And really, if you think about the epistle, the second epistle, the last epistle, Paul's been building this up. In chapter 2, verse 9, Paul said this, but God's word is not chained. And then in verse 15 of chapter 2, he said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In other words, one who gets it straight and who gives it straight. But I also want you to understand, look at the context, beloved. Look at the verse by placing the command to preach the word first and then expanding on it, using that as his first beachhead, as it were, and then expanding on it, what really Paul is doing as he puts that first and then he follows it with the imperatives, is he's making an important point. Faithful biblical preaching is the hallmark of a true ministry. It is the hallmark of a true ministry. Calvin put it so well. He said, as goes preaching, so goes the church of Jesus Christ. It is invaluable. Preaching is, is the, the most important thing, really. I mean, every, there are a lot of things that are important, but preaching must, there must be good, faithful preaching if a church is to do well. In fact, Paul is saying to Timothy, Though you may be shy or reserved, though you may prefer to remain in the background, you must give yourself wholeheartedly to the public preaching of the Word of God. I'm sure many of you enjoy reading uh, biographies, and I, I'm, I'm sure that I'm amongst uh, a kin, kindred spirit here when I say John Calvin is, is one of the, my favorite historical heroes. But I think most of you would know about Calvin, that Calvin was himself quite a timid man. He, his own inclinations were to shut himself up and give his great mind to private studies. 
He was a very academically minded man. And he decided to do this earlier on. However, when he visited the city of Geneva, I think you know what happened. William Farrell, that fiery reformer of Geneva, discovered that he was there and he, he found him. And it really was a meeting that changed Calvin's life. In fact, Calvin, in his preface to the commentary on the Psalms, gives this account of what happened. Pharaoh, who burned with extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits. And finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and that the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent would be completely troubled. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. Calvin's biographer, John Dillinger, or Dillenberger, wrote this. He said the course of his life was irrevocably changed, not just geographically, but vocationally. Never again would Calvin work in what he called the tranquility of studies. From now on, every page of the 48 volumes of books and tracts and sermons and commentaries and letters that he wrote would be hammered out on the anvil and the crucible of pastoral responsibility. That's what really makes Calvin's works so valuable, is that they are wrought out in the trenches, in the trenches of Christian ministry. Calvin, despite his inclination, gave himself to the public proclamation and the ministry of the word. And beloved, when you read his writings, they have such pungency and practicality. Think of the letters. Think of the, the, the sermons he wrote. All with the, with the, with the hearer in mind. All with the, the flock in mind. This was all done in Geneva. He preached the word on every occasion. Correcting, rebuking, encouraging with patience and careful instruction. It's important to understand this because this is not a matter of personality type. It's not a matter of inclination. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience. Obedience to the call that God has placed upon your life. And I, I want to again say that we can so easily gloss over this, but I, I, I think it needs to be emphasized. It is a word to be preached. It is a word to be preached. One man wrote this, he says, there is no hint here that preaching is thought of primarily as self-expression of subjective experience or feeling disclosure or autobiography or telling one's story so as to neglect the scripture. The whole counsel of God is to be preached without fanciful, idiosyncratic amendment or individualistic addition. Not a motivational speaker. This is not a therapy session. When we get up into the pulpit, it's his word. It's his authority. And so I want to encourage you as a pastor, as an elder of God, never preach yourself. 
Never preach yourself. Paul said it so well. He said, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bond servants for Jesus' sake. I am tired, beloved. I'm sure you've experienced it. Where you're visiting a church, perhaps you're visiting family members and you go to a church and you're sitting in there and you're hoping for the best. For the most part, you're probably expecting the worst, but you're hoping for the best. And all you get is little anecdotes and stories. And you come away famished and hungry and thirsty. What an indictment on churches that call themselves churches of Jesus Christ when that happens. Preach the whole counsel of God. That's really what Paul was saying. Preach the whole counsel of God. Let the word do the work. This is what Paul said, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Preach the word. That's the first imperative and the key imperative. But the second one is he expands on it. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, whether you feel like it or not, whether it suits you or not, whether it's inconvenient or convenient. The man of God must not re reserve preaching only when he feels like, only when he's mentally ready. No, be ready in season and out of season. When you're in the right frame of mind, when you're in the wrong frame of mind. And often you may even find that when you've been going through quite a bit and the last thing you feel like doing is preaching, when you get up into the pulpit and you seek to be faithful, it is in God, in your weakness, that God's strength is made perfect. And so, beloved, I want you to hear, I want you to understand the weight of this. The radical, the call for radical availability. In fact, Calvin came to understand for himself that it even called for aggressiveness in overcoming hindrances. The man suffered. The man had, had, had kidney stones. I mean, he... He suffered. He had all kinds of problems. He had gout. But he preached. And how many times a week did he preach? Twice on the Lord's Day and throughout the week. In season, out of season, ruthless persistence. Two days before the death of Clarence Edward McCartney, the great Presbyterian preacher and upholder of orthodoxy, was visited by his brother, Robertson. He was on his way to preach at a nearby church. As Robertson left, he heard his famous brother say, put all the Bible you can into it. And as Dr. Oswald T. Ellis remarked, it was the counsel of one who had spent 50 years in the gospel ministry, occupied three historical pulpits, preached to thousands, had written many books, read and traveled extensively, and played a prominent role in the life of the Christian church. And with these simple words, this famous preacher summed it all up. Put all the Bible you can into it. And I want to say to you, beloved, I cannot emphasize, I have found this to be so important. Tie yourself to the text. Tie yourself to the text. Because your people want you to see that the authority is here. So when you're preaching this book, you can say to them, that's what the text says. Look at how it works out. Look at how it comes out of the text. You are to be a man of the word. 
You are to study it. You are to learn its themes, its outlines, all of its, all of the book. You are to memorize the great passages. You are to immerse yourself in its narratives. You are to know its great soul. You are to walk in those texts and walk with them. Rather than thinking of yourself handling the word of God, think of yourself as one being handled by the word of God. Spurgeon's term, you are to have bibline. He said that of Bunyan. You could prick him anywhere and Bible verses would pour out instead of blood. Put all the Bible into it. In other words, beloved, the encouragement from this text is let the word do the work. Let the word do the work. The final three imperatives form a, a neat, tight group, a triple ministry. Convince rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Now, there are some people in the church who smell like gunpowder. doesn't matter where they go. They're always making a, a ruckus, and they like to be confrontational. I don't think people like that should be in the ministry, to be real honest with you. But I do also want to say this. Don't be a shirker. Don't shirk your responsibility. There are times you have to be confrontational and you need to be for the sake of the soul of the person you're dealing with. Many of you may know of John Stott. Uh, John Stott is a faithful preacher of God's word. We don't always agree with Don, John Stott and everything, but for the most part, John Stott has been a faithful preacher of the word of God. But he speaks of this man who had an impact in his life as a young boy. He came to salvation through the ministry of a remarkable a uh, man in the Church of England, a man by the name of E.J.H. Nash. They affectionately called him Bash, Nash or Bash. And uh, what, what this man got his nickname for was he was very aggressive in his discipleship of the men that he was tutoring and helping as they were aspiring to the ministry. And he was pretty aggressive in his, in his correction. And Stott writes, his letter to me often contained rebuke, for I was a wayward young Christian, and I needed to be disciplined. In fact, so frequent were his admonitions at one period that whenever I saw his familiar writing on an envelope, I needed to pray and prepare myself for a half an hour before I felt ready to open. It's pretty rough, but it's needed. Convincing, correcting. Show your people where they are wrong. Rebuke. Tell them to stop. Require, this requires that you are not a man pleaser, a people pleaser, or a popularity seeker. The worst thing you could ever be. And beloved, how many of us are wired that way. I know I'm wired that way. Just recently, had occasion to speak to a brother who was preaching. And... I was concerned about his preaching. I took two weeks to pray about it before I actually spoke to him. Eventually, I did speak to him. I'm thankful I did. But it wasn't easy. Because I know when you get up in the pulpit, it's not easy. But I, 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 the motivation in my heart for doing what I did was I love the brother. And I want him to do well. And I want him to feed the sheep. And I want him to be faithful. Look at the third imperative. 
exhort with long-suffering and teaching. Yes, by all means, correct rebuke. But how are you to do it? In what manner? In what spirit? Exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Come alongside your people. Come alongside your people. Please, beloved, please listen to me carefully. One of the best things you can do. Don't be a talking head. Don't preach at your people. Come alongside them. Love them. Be patient with them. Be long-suffering. Smell like the sheep. Smell like the sheep. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Notice how these two must be teamed together. Correction, rebuke must be teamed together with careful teaching or they will be unprofitable. So let me ask you the question. How do you think you measure up? You think you can do this? Surely you are feeling the weight of Paul's admonition. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Folks, this is an impossible task. But here's the encouragement. This call, this command is an invitation to let God possess you, to live a life of profound dependence on him. Be humble before God. Lay before God. There's a young man who went up to preach. And there was an older man who was mentoring him. And the young man went up with great stride and went up. He had a silver bullet and felt like he had a really well-polished sermon. Preached the sermon and it was flat. Just no response. And he came down dejected and just kind of with his mouth in the gravel. And he said to the older man, "How? what did I do wrong? And the older man was very wise. He said to him, if you had gone up like you came down, you would have come down like you went up. So let's move on. So the solemnity, the importance, then the reason for Paul's charge. Look at verse 3 and 4. Why, folks? Why is this so important? Take a look. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. People naturally move away from the truth. I was listening to a sermon by Douglas Macmillan. He's a Free Church of Scotland preacher. He died many years ago. Godly man, such a godly man. He was a shepherd in the highlands of Scotland. And he said one thing about sheep that he learned is that when they go astray, they never come back. They never come back. You have to go fetch them. You have to go fetch them. And he said he would go for miles, miles, find sheep that had gone astray. And this is what you're dealing with. The prophetic word covers the whole biblical history, both in retrospect and prospect. Jeremiah, he was one who lamented. The prophets prophesy lies, and my people love it. They love it this way. Ezekiel, 
Indeed, this is what Ezekiel said. You are to them as a very, or God said to, to Ezekiel about the people. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. Don't think your job is done when people come up to you and say to you, Pastor, what a good sermon. Don't think your job is done. More often than not, you will find that people will say that to you and they will go and do exactly the opposite of what you said. They will not take your counsel. Our Lord Jesus warned us. He gave us the parable of the four soils. And really, in reality, most people who claim to be Christians, in fact, the majority of people, really turn out to be unbelievers. And that's a sad thing, because if you think about it, it's only the fourth soil, the fruit-bearing soil, that has real faith. People love to hear things. They love to hear novelties. They want you to wow them. They want you to impress them. They look for teachers. This rock star Christianity is the curse of, of westernized evangelicalism. Rock star Christianity. People flock to all the conferences, to all the big speakers. But it translates to literally nothing. Look at the culture. Look at society. Has it been transformed? Now, again, I'm not saying that God hasn't used faithful preaching. He surely has. But there's been a lot of preaching. There's been a lot of teaching. There's been a lot of information out there. A lot of, a lot of exegesis and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And yet, beloved, so few people are really changed. Their lives are really moved. Gregory Nazanzus wrote concerning itch ears. When this syndrome is in place, people who call themselves Christians will find the truth in Christ Jesus intolerable. And they will seek to stamp it out. Let me tell you, when you press upon them the need for Christ, they will not tolerate it. They won't. Let me hurry on. Preach the word in its historical setting, in the context of the whole Bible. Make the appropriate biblical connections. Discern all the ways it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The Puritans were wonderfully gifted in this way. As pastors, they knew how to get to the consciences of people. J.R. Packer's little book, A Quest for Godliness. I'll never forget a phrase I read there about the Puritans. They were men who knew how to rip up the conscience. And beloved, we need to know how to preach the word of God like that. But we can only preach the word of God like that if God is doing that in our lives and the word of God is being applied to our lives in that way. Well, I need to hurry on. What is necessary in Paul's charge? Take a look. And I'll close with this. Give me a few more minutes. It says, he sums it up. He finishes his thought. But you be watchful in all things. Endure, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, Paul is saying, in the midst of chaos, keep your head. Keep your head. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Endure affliction. Put on the gospel armor. Hide yourself in Christ. Cling to Christ. Be faithful. Preach the gospel. Preach Christ. Fulfill your ministry. 
Alistair Begg was at a meeting, a number of pastors at a fraternal, and he was quoting on the, or he was commenting, should I say, on, on the verse or the part of the verse, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And folks, I want, to, I want you to remember these are imperatives. These are not, we have to do these. We're to be faithful. This is what it looks like. This is what Alistair Begg said. He said, I increasingly find that verse to be the anchor point of all my days. I wake up on Monday and say, well, what will I do now? Then I say, well, I think I'll try to keep my head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of my ministry. And when I am lifted up by a little encouragement, which sometimes comes, I say to myself, well, what shall I do? The answer is keep your head, endure hardship, and so on. He paused, and he went on. And when the waves beat on me and I feel just like running away to the hills somewhere, what should I do? Well, Alistair, just keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. And then he concluded, so that is a word in season for us to take away and think of. That's the charge, friends. I've been in the ministry now for, oh, 35 years, some shape or form. And I tell you, the years fly by like the fence posts on a farm road as you drive along. They move very quickly. Years turn into de decades. I'm not a, an old man, but I entered the ministry, was called into the ministry and became a, a minister very young. I was 20, 21 years old. And I tell you, folks, a lot of things will change around you. But these, this charge will never change. It will never change. This reality will not change. Jesus is the judge and the savior and the king of his under shepherds. And he will always be present. And he will always be charging you, faithful servants of God and faithful under shepherds to perform the work he's called you to, not in your own power, because if you're trying to do it in your own power, you will fail. Jesus put it very clearly to his disciples. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A lot of people make that all about the fruit. That's not all about the fruit. That's about communion and fellowship with Christ because he goes on to say, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And I take that to mean Jesus is saying to my father wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to prove to be his disciples. Abide in me. Cling to me. Spend time in prayer. Call upon me. Cling. Lay at my feet. Let me remind you of the church. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. You keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Amen.
Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for these words. And truly, Lord, even after some of us have been in the ministry for many years, we can ourselves feel the weight of what Paul said. Who is sufficient for these things? We have all failed and failed in many ways. Father, we do thank you that it is in our weakness that your strength is made all the more perfect, as it were. Help us to learn, as the apostle said, I will boast all the more in my weakness so that the grace of God would rest upon me. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to abide in you. Help us to have your word abide in us. Help us to be men of prayer, pleading your promises, always setting before the people you, Lord Jesus, our Savior, crucified. Because, Lord, as you were proclaimed to your people, as you were lifted up, you have promised that you will draw all men to yourself. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. Grant us copious measures of your Holy Spirit. You rem we remember the words that you spoke to your disciples. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more won't you, our Heavenly Father, give to us the Holy Spirit when we ask you for it? Lord, we need him. We need him every step of the way. Help us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.